I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Lip Media Podcast. You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. It's the 30th of July 2019 and welcome to Queers. Hi everyone, it's Simon here. This week I'm talking with Jared Bartle. Jared is a lecturer in criminal law, a consultant and a writer on sex, drugs and crime. He also co-hosts the podcast Sinister Sissies with Paul Karp. In our interview, we talked about Jared's work in criminal justice and why he believes the system is in dire need of reform. We also spoke about the use of the word queer and why Jared has begun to reject it in recent years. Finally, we chatted about Jared's new podcast and why he's interested in all the weird and wonderful parts of sex and sexuality. I hope you enjoy the interview. Jared, thank you for joining Queers. Thanks for having me. It's very exciting. I'm an avid listener of the podcast. Oh, well, thank you. I'm glad to have finally gotten you on after we've chatted about it for a little while. Yeah. Um, well, let's start off. I mean, you, as I said in the bio, you said you describe yourself as a writer on sex, drugs, and crime. I've taken that from your Twitter bio. Yes. Um, and, I, and you know, one of the things I enjoy about your writing is that it's kind of often focused on the sort of weird and sometimes wonderful parts of crime and sexuality. Uh, yes. How do you? How do these three things connect for you and what drives your interest behind them? I suppose, I mean... It, it, the the sex, drugs, and crime part makes sense in terms of my like professional backgrounds. So I used to work as a criminal lawyer, and I've moved on to yeah, as you said, doing consultancy work in alcohol and drugs. Um, I'm a consultant for the Australian Adult Industry, the the Eros Association, the Industry Association, um, and I also advise and teach in, in criminal justice stuff. So practically, my professional background and current professional life informs my writing um but as to you know why am i interested in sex and drugs and weird occult satanist things and the various other things that i write about um i suppose i'm i'm really interested in what i think academically is often called like limit experiences so this idea of being so overwhelmed 
by a sensation either because of uh, of sex or because of um, you've experienced something really horrific or because um, you're taking a lot of psychedelic drugs. There's this like really transcendent state that people find themselves in uh, and it can be both bad and good and all these different things. And I find those, those limit experiences endlessly fascinating. And I think that's the general theme that of what I write about is, is things taken to an extreme and mm. I'm fascinated by those extremes and, and the almost kind of quasi religious uh, experiences that people go through as part of those extremes. I don't know if that makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah, in my no, it head. makes it makes sense to me. I've never heard the term limited experiences before in my life, so I'm just sort of computing them. So it's 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 a it's an interesting term because yeah, I hadn't heard it before. Uh, I love a bit of uh, Georges Bataille, which I'm probably mispronouncing in the French. Uh, That's fine. Very influential on uh, French philosophy and French sociology, and th- th- that's the kind of stuff that he often talks about. So I guess I'm thinking about like that because you know I think that that limit extreme uh, sorry experiences. I mean, it makes sense in terms of sex and drugs. Um, the thing that I'm really interested in is the element of crime and the criminal justice system, and that's the thing that I find that I enjoy about your work the most. And maybe it's just because it t- t- touches on a, things, a bunch of things that I'm interested in and mm. how these things relate together. So what are some of the areas in which, you know, in in the current world, bringing it into sort of real world, well, I mean, all of this is real world, this is all everyone's experiences, but mm. into the current political debates, where are some of the areas in which, you know, there's an intersection, particularly between sex and crime that you think are particularly interesting, but also very important at the moment when we're talking about sort of LGBTIQ communities in particular, or just more brent, more broadly? I mean, so there's, there's a lot of things that could be covered uh, by that. Um, I think when we're talking about the criminal justice system, um, crime and criminalization is... And, and we don't often think about it this way, but it is dealing with social deviancy. It is dealing, you know, something becomes a crime because we have strong social norms saying it's wrong and it reaches a certain threshold of deviancy from that norm that we have this criminal justice process in place. I'm not a fan of the current criminal justice process and how that deals with, with deviancy, um, in particular because um, I think it fails to address the underlying causes of why someone becomes a, a deviant individual in the first place. Some other kind of intersections in terms of sex and crime. Um, one thing that I that I often write about is uh, a, a trend within the legal system of, of criminalizing consensual injury. Um, and of course, when you hear the term consensual injury, it's, it's, uh, it seems like a, like a, the two terms shouldn't go together, but obviously with, um, say, sadomasochistic um, situations where someone is getting some form of pleasure from injury and from harm, um, the current law that applies in Australia and in, indeed in many common law countries is that if you consent to injury, you cannot take into account that consent in a criminal prosecution. So, so people can be prosecuted for causing injury, even though that was a consensual act and indeed that that act brings sexual pleasure to people. Um, and we're seeing that expand in lots of other really interesting ways. So there's a, there's a body modification case in New South Wales where that's also playing out. So they're the kind so of off part the top of your of my critique head. here. 
that you know you talk about um, you know the, you talk about the, the sort of the de- you know the, the criminal law is about defining something to be too deviant in in, in particular ways and you know there's, this is a sexual deviancy case uh, and you can think about something really basic like uh, like murder as a sort of a social uh, decision that, that murder is something that is sort of not socially acceptable and so therefore we're going to sort of criminally you know it's it's too socially deviant um, and, and that's not necessarily an argument against criminalizing murder of course yeah no no I'm not, uh, not, not and I I think it's I think it's it's appreciating what we're doing when we criminalize something and being very mm. clear about what we're doing yeah absolutely and so is your critique uh, around this uh, around BDSM in particular and and I was going to touch on this later in the interview but let's let's cover it now I think you, yeah. you wrote an article on this uh, I think it was called where should the law draw the line between consent and culpability in say masochism yeah would you argue that your critique of this is that it's defining something to be socially deviant in a way that you don't see it to be socially like to, to the point of uh, that it needs to be criminally you know, uh, become a criminal justice issue um, to the point where you don't think it, you know, where, where it doesn't cross that barrier, that, it, that it's, it's pushing the boundaries too far uh, in just in what we define as too socially deviant. Yeah, and I, I think so. The conversation article was um, talking about uh, the issue that I was just talking about, where consent to injury in Australia um, likely still forms within the scope of the criminal justice system. Um, and it comes from a case of Crown against Brown. Uh, it's a UK case from the House of Lords where uh, a bunch of gay guys entering into consensual sadomasochistic uh, sexual activities with one another. Police found the videos of this. They thought they were uh, looking at a snuff film when they first saw this. Um, and uh, charge them with with various um, offences to do with unlawful and malicious wounding. This went to the House of Lords, and this is in 1994. And uh, the House of Lords looked at a whole history of cases where consent was accepted as a defence to these sorts of injury offences. So two guys get into a boxing ring. Um, they can beat the shit out of each other. Someone can die as a result of that. But they consented to that dangerous activity, and that's fine. And that was well-established law at the time. Um, But the fact that the men were taking sexual pleasure as a result of that injury for the House of Lords was too much. They said that 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 demonstrated some sort of cult of violence about the society, and therefore that consent shouldn't be taken into account. And A deviancy that went too far. Yeah, and I, I find that interesting for a couple of reasons in that the the court was able to recognise social value in boxing, which is a spectacle of violence, but not sadomasochism, which is also a spectacle of violence. Um, and I think it's because of the sex part. <laughs> I think it's because uh, someone was getting sexual pleasure from that spectacle of violence, and for some reason that flipped it over. Um yeah, I mean, we've, we've spoken about this on the podcast a bit about the sort of uh, fear of sex we, that we have or the uh, the repulsion even at sex that a lot of mm. uh, sort of social norms are based around. Yeah, it's, sex is such a strange thing in that I think it's both overrated and underrated in many ways. Uh, it, it is viewed as having um, a force or a power that I don't necessarily think that it, that it does. And I think this relates back to what I was saying earlier about those limit experiences. I think that the reason sexuality 
seems to have such power is that that it can cause bodies to go into this kind of involuntary, uh, you know, orgasmic state. Uh, And I think that we're both really attracted to that and also really frightened by that. Um, And yeah, you see it reflected in the criminal law. I think that's interesting, though, because I think that uh, going back to the boxing example or, you know, I think immediately of the example of rugby because I played rugby for a couple of years. Mm. Um, I could argue, and I think I would argue, that they also represent a potential limit experience. The physical pain that comes from that, the the, the adrenaline rush, the, uh, the like there's a whole bunch of stuff that I got physically out of those things mm. beyond the competition that I, that, that, that sort of drove me to engage in in a in, in quite a in sometimes dangerous and painful sport uh that caused you know that does cause injuries um but we socially accept that uh that 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 yeah. sort of limited experience there so there's there's clearly limited experiences that we accept or we maybe even don't consider them to be limit experiences even if they are uh whereas there are ones we don't accept uh, and it's interesting to think about why that's the case. Yeah, I, I hadn't actually thought of, I mean, as someone who's not very interested in sports, I probably haven't kind of considered that. But that that makes sense to me. Um, and if you read Bataille, it's, it's, it's really interesting how um, you kind of need a ritual to create these sorts of experiences in people. So th- mm, And sport is full of ritual. Yeah, it's all kind of uh, ritualistic. And same with sexuality. We know that sexuality is not... I mean, it's that classic thing is if you think too much about what you're doing during sex, it ruins the mood. It, 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 there's there's a certain symbolic gestures associated with it. Um, so, yeah, that's an interesting point. Just going back to this particular case um, that you're talking about in the, the sadomasochism. Uh, I'm always going to get this word wrong, sadomasochism. Sadomasochism. Uh, um, you just say S&M. S&M, yeah. I, I want to go back to a bunch of stuff on the criminal justice system, but I just want to touch on this while we're talking about it. I mean, one of the things I've found interesting about that piece and around what you've said so far as well is the, and maybe I'm just playing a slight devil's advocate here in in this, but I think it's worth, you know, having this sort of discourse is Mm -hmm. one of the things you could discuss here is the limits of the nature of consent as a legal mechanism to engage with in these sorts of questions. Uh, And uh, how can we, I mean, I think there were a lot of people would argue that nobody can actually consent to being physically injured to having, you know, uh, quite often, I think, you know, when you're talking to the extremes of S&M, you're talking about the potential of, um, you know, life changing or, you know, like, you know, things that injuries that might, might stick and for the rest of your in life. In the Brown case, there, there was a permanent injury as a result yeah. of, of the activities that were being done. And, you know, and I'm, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. And, and I think that those arguments are, I don't actually agree with those arguments, but I wonder whether that, to me, uh, presents one limitation of the use of consent as a as a means to defend these cases in many ways, in that there's something, uh, and I, you know, and I, this goes back to a bunch of critiques I have about def- consent as a legal mechanism overall. Um, but that consent is quite limiting in the way that it can do these things because it doesn't bring into account things like the social situation at the time. You know, what is consent in this in these terms? Now, I, I believe that. These guys that you're talking about in this case, they probably all were happily in, engaged in this process, but the the physical act of consent does not necessarily mean that 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 is the case all the time. And so, how do we incorporate that nuance into such 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 a um, sort of legal situation? So, for me, I think I think discussions about um, social and economic factors to do with why we make certain decisions 
I think that that is that is a discussion to be had, and I think that's a useful discussion to be had. I think in the Brown case, what you have is you have an exercise of power by an authority, uh, so a court, and I yeah. So I think you know when you have an exercise of authority, whether it's a court or or government. Or you know, even kind of a social group, even if it's if it's if it's going to result in some sort of major impact for an individual, when you have that power being wielded, I think you really need a clear principle or a really concrete principle to apply. Um, in that, yes, yes, we can talk about the social and economic factors associated with consent, but that principle, if two people have entered into a free agreement to do something and they knew full well what they were getting into before they entered into that agreement. Um, that to me is so important to have this very clear limit of when authority is not justified in interfering in. And we can talk about the complexities of it and we can break it apart and we can talk about the nuances of it, but as a strong defense against power, and authority, I think it's very, very important to uphold consent as that that principle. Yeah, I think that's a convincing response. Um, I, I come to that question, I only ask that question because I think that uh, consent is, when we talk about it, particularly in the cases of sexual assaults and, and rape and things that we've, and Ben and I have had a, a, a an episode about this, um, consent mm. is quite transactional in the way that it deals with things and doesn't actually deal with a whole range of the nuances that exist in relationships and in, in turn, I think, can be quite a weak um, measure mm. of how we can measure these sorts of um you know it particularly legally can be quite a, a weak in the sense of not necessarily weak in the sense of like it's not powerful enough on coming down on perpetrators but weak in the sense of like i don't think it holds as a as a measure of what is actually a relationship that you know functions or that has the capacity to function uh, and i was just interested in how that came across in a, in a case like this where there is a reliance on consent uh, within that space and i think that you've got a like a, a good response there in terms of well you know, we, we need to have measures against the use of power there. And I, I mean, that reveals kind of my politics as well. I, um, I am focused largely on restricting the power of groups, um, that kind of liberal politics or civil libertarian politics. Um, and, and it does worry me sometimes when people are well-meaningly trying to critique somebody's personal um, perspective that they made a decision. Um, that, to me, is, is always worrying to me in that it is undermining the, the separateness that we all have. And I think that the, you really need to uphold that separateness, that individualism, um, if you are going to protect against, you know, the misuse of power. Fair enough. Actually, I think that's a potentially a good way to segue back into some of the conversation about the broader, the justice system more broadly. I mean, I was mm -hmm. interested at the start, you said that you're sort of critical of the justice system because it fails on thinking about why people become deviant in particular ways. And, you know, using a, a simple case like a murder case, like it fails to understand why people may may commit murder for example can you explain mm -hmm. that a little bit a little bit further for our listeners as you know what it, what's 
what are the failings that are happening here? Sure. Um, obviously, this is a huge topic as to yeah, know, yeah, why sorry. people commit crimes. Um, but, you know... Is it yeah, no, no, I don't want over- you to... T- don't explain, if, you know, why people commit crimes so much, but go to the sort of failings of the of the justice system in particular. Yeah, I, so I suppose, I mean, the, the main failing of the, the justice system is that our current criminal justice system works very well at uh, temporarily housing offenders, does that quite well, in terms of actually getting them off the street. Um, and the other thing it does well is, is basically just fucking up people's lives in various ways um you know if we if we talk about the issues associated with imprisonment to begin with um we know it's a pretty foundational well-established part of criminology research that um people who go into prison leave prison more dangerous um less likely to succeed in society and more likely to to re-offend um, because of a, a variety of factors, there's the, the, the trauma- traumatic experience of actually being in prison. Um, there's the disconnection from family and community and j- basic job opportunities um, associated with that. Um, you often hear about an institu- institutionalization effect that happens within prison, that people become dependent on others to um, uh, live their lives for them or cater their lives for them. And when they get out, they're not able to do that. Um, And then there's the ongoing effects of things like parole and criminal records and all of that sort of stuff, which basically mean that the current system is not, you know, when you learn uh, the criminal justice 101 they talk about how rehabilitation is a key part of the criminal justice system it's just not you 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 all the research points that 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 particularly if you're funneling people into a prison environment that that doesn't work even when you try and move past that even when someone's on a community-based order even when someone just gets a fine um, you still have the flow-on effects of uh criminal records um uh, inefficient use of community resources and in fact if someone's been charged with a criminal offense that often means that they can't use certain types of community resources um a system overall in really really complicated ways uh does not work to make society safer and the reason i asked that broad question is because i want to go into a sort of a narrow uh uh, sort of field of of discussion here, and I, and I mentioned this kind of in the introduction. Um, that one of the things that I notice, and one of the things that I'm critical of, and this is kind of what I want to dive into, is a push within a lot of sort of broad LGBTIQ politics, whatever you want to call it. I think I see a shift towards the criminal systems to deal with homophobia or queerphobia or whatever you want to call it. And so, you know, I, I see increasingly, I mean, around the world, there's been, you know, pushes to increase penalties for, for hate crimes, so-called hate crimes. And there's also this, I think, a real shift now for getting the state involved in banning hate speech and the sort of talking about the harms of hate speech and the need to to ban it. Um, mm. I mean, you know, I take it from this. You know, that you would disagree with these as a, as a, as you know, you would disagree with this being a right, the correct approach. But I'm wondering if you have noticed a similar trend and what your sort of thoughts are on that. Yeah, I think, I think if somebody sees a certain type of behaviour and they view it as abhorrent and they view it as wrong, the automatic response uh, is to criminalise it. And I think that 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 completely makes sense um what i would say is in relation to so in relation to kind of hate speech 
Uh, no, sorry, not in relation to hate speech, in relation to hate crimes, where there's a uh, crime on the books that already exists, um, but they but uh, people are arguing that there should be a particular type of aggravating factor associated with it if the reasons behind that crime are because of prejudice towards a particular demographic. My biggest issue with um, hate crime legislation is it is... Um, a kind of backdoor way of increasing this punitive politics. So, uh, you know, a certain offence will have a, um, a kind of maximum sentence associated with it, and that'll hold for the general offence, and then you'll have hate crime legislation, which means that that maximum is increased dramatically. And it's, it's a strategic way of increasing the punitive effects of, of the criminal justice system, which I've already explained, are not going to make the world safer. In terms of creating new offences for um, conduct that is deemed abhorrent, I don't want to say necessarily uh, that we, we shouldn't do that. What I would say, though, is that I don't think it's going to deal with the underlying factors that cause someone to homophobically abuse someone, um, whether that's just verbal abuse or whether that's physical violence. I think that um, our society actually has a really, really strong social norm, um, not only against homophobia, um, but also against violence in general. I actually do think the vast majority of people do not think it's okay to homophobically abuse a, a gay couple, for example. And I think that's interesting because I think that I agree with you on that. And I think that the evidence points in that direction, particularly, in a, you know, particularly in a country like Australia, um, and, uh, but I think that a lot of people wouldn't agree with that and would say that we li- still live in a society that, uh, that in which it is okay to do that. And I, I think that, um, I don't know where that comes from. I think there's, uh, but I think I see that increasingly a sort of pessimism mm. around the nature of, of, of homophobia well, in Australia. And unfortunately it reshapes the debate. It reshapes how you discuss the matter because, when I think of uh, homophobic violence as actually being a socially deviant act, it makes me think, well, what's going on with these people that means that they're not actually able to internalize social norms? And increasingly, you'll find that people that, that, that aren't able to internalize those social norms probably have substance abuse issues. They probably have mental health issues. They may have um, kind of personality disorders. They may have, you know, complicated socioeconomic factors. And suddenly the perpetrator becomes less of this kind of caricature and becomes this really um, complex figure to deal with. Uh, And I think it's sometimes easier um, to not think that way, to think that, well, we live in a homophobic society and if we criminalize it, we're going to eradicate, um, homophobia or we're going to reshape things structurally. I just, I just don't think that's how the world is. And I don't think that's how criminalization works. I mean, I, I, I agree. And I think that it's, inter- you know, the, the thing that I think about automatically, and this is kind of where a lot of my research is based, is if you look at gendered violence, it's very similar. There's a mm. sort of caricature we have of the bad man who, who engages in gendered violence. There's a caricature we have of society as a society that accepts this all the time. And I, th- and I do agree that there are social, particular social structures that allow it to happen. But I don't think 
broadly society is 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 accepting of it um but when you and but then again when you look at the individual cases uh time and time again you see these sorts of complex factors uh, yeah. that lead to that and that doesn't make it less horrible it doesn't mean mm. it doesn't have a gendered element to it uh it just that it's more complex than this simple caricature as a as a policy consultant it is um it is sometimes difficult that we do live in an environment where people think that a that a, behave, a kind of an awareness campaign is going to be more effective than say an intervention to improve the mental health system um and i i think that is because i don't know for some reason the politics of it has framed it in such a way that it is a question of just social prejudice um, or social norms. And they're they're definitely relevant factors. And it's always hard to have these discussions because you have to emphasize, yes, uh, misogyny is a relevant factor in in family violence. Absolutely. Evidence to prove that. Um, Somebody who commits a homophobic act probably has a prejudice towards gay people. That's absolutely a factor as well. But but looking, but there's at... also another step that leads to that to become a violent act. There's there, you know, historically there are people who have had who have homophobic prejudice, but they don't all engage in violent acts. You know, and also, I think that there's some things deserve more funding than others. I mean, that's what it ultimately comes down to from a policy consultancy perspective. Is that that you know we want to we have limited resources available. What do we fund to have the most impact? And it's it's not an awareness campaign. Yep. Yeah. Actually, I think that that that's quite a nice segue into the sort of other element I wanted to discuss about this question. And I, you know, I can I can the the one thing I think uh, that uh, when you critique when when I, when I have critiqued historically uh, the prison system, and when I listen to the critiques uh, that you've making of the prison system. The one thing that I think a lot of people would come back to is, well, let's think about, you know, that that person who committed that homophobic crime, that person who um, who committed that murder or whatever. Why would we not want to lock them up? You know, we need to keep our society safe. Uh, so, what? How do we? How do we actually engage with that sort of question um, when we're acknowledging that it actually creates things, makes things harder? How do? We, like, what is? What do? What do we actually? If we don't have a prison system, what do we do with people who who might commit a homophobic murder? And look, I'm I'm not. I, my politics is not very radical. I'm not. A, I'm not a prison abolitionist. Um, what I would say is. Um, if somebody has reached a threshold where, where we think that they maybe um, uh, deserve some sort of targeted rehabilitation type effort uh, type um, intervention, then community-based orders are very, very effective. And we should tie um, the control that we have over these people in community-based orders to uh, particular services that are going to reform their behavior. So that would be my kind of main priority, um, that, that if we think they need targeted intervention, um, that should be the focus. The other side of things is that we should um, strengthen social services around uh, society more generally. Um, look, it, it, that seems like a like a cliched lefty it's like like less like when saying like we just need more education um I, I don't mean that in a really kind of flippant way that if we just fund more community services everything would be fine um but we need to address the fact that that 
Crime in particular areas is tied to a lack of social services and community services in those areas. And so we often hear this term justice reinvestment um, be banded about about. And, and, and what that's all about is saying, okay, we know that there's this type of crime happening in that particular area. We need to pump a shitload of funding into the community services that are going to um, deal with the underlying factors that are causing crime. So you're talking area. about like homelessness services, yes. drug and alcohol yes. services, those kinds of things. Yes, and having better integration with them. So kind of being able to get um, mental health services and AOD services and homelessness services working together effectively, which is often the hardest part. Um, even just uh, general family support services. So... Um, we know that the that kids that grow up in dysfunctional family environments are more likely to offend. So that, that requires the education system to have particular funding and to be able to integrate very well with community family support services to improve those things. Um, there's just there's so much that we can do. Um, and uh, the focus is, is not on those things that we know that are very evidence-based that will work. The focus is instead on criminalization. Um, and I say that as someone that is not, I mean, often when I start talking like this, people think that I'm some sort of bleeding heart, you know, overly sympathetic type person. I'm not. These people are assholes. These people are fucking terrible. And I, I represented them as a lawyer. I just, I believe in evidence-based policy and the evidence is saying that the, the current system it's deeply, deeply, deeply flawed and we need to reshape how we think about it. Yeah, and it's interesting to think, like, I think that there's a potential fear or I don't know what it is, and I, and I see this play out most prominently, again, when it comes to gender-based violence, that discourse, that, dis- that discussing these sorts of things ignores this question of prejudice. Um, and I think that what it actually, what we, what there's the capacity to do is to do like to do two things at once. And that the moment, the focus on prejudice is ignoring all of these other really important social service work that needs to be done. And that has, as you said, got evidence to prove that it can reduce violence and it does reduce violence, uh, when, when you do that investment. Yeah. And look, I think unfortunately in terms of the, the discourse around this sort of stuff, and this, this may come off quite, quite harsh, but um, in terms of media commentary um, and even to some extent, some degree of academic commentary, um, it, it's a much easier to have the sexism and homophobia discussion. It's much easier. It's just an easy discussion. A much harder discussion is, you know, effective referral pathways uh, within mental health wards with alcohol and drug services. Not only is that boring, (laughs) um, but it's also just not something that everyone can speak on. And I think one of the issues that we have is that the discourse is often focused on the social norm stuff because that's something that that writers and commentators and the commentariat and the politics um, can chat about (laughs) effectively. Yep. Yep. That makes sense to me. I'm going to switch gears for the last maybe 10 minutes of our conversation to a couple of different topics. Sure. Uh, one that I, uh, I, you know, this is kind of a, a side topic and then I'm going to ask you about your podcast as well. But one thing I'd really like to talk to you about, to you about briefly is the word queer itself. I mean, we yes. uh, have 
uh, you know, this is a podcast called Queers. Um, and, you know, I know that uh, you rejected this term queer and I am increasingly skeptical of it, even though I'm on a podcast called Queers. And so I wanted to, you know, have that conversation with you. Why do you think, you know, why do you, I mean, I think you say that you identify more as gay than you would as mm. queer. Why is that the case? What's, what's, what's your feelings behind that? Well, I the, the word queer, I used to use that word quite often because the associations that I had um, with the word queer was kind of 1980s, 1990s activist groups. So Queer mm. Nation, for example. Yeah, this is the, what I like about it too. Yeah, yeah, I have associations with them. And they. I, the thing that I loved about those groups is that they prioritised sexual liberation over acceptable nice normalized notions of politics i um i really love the fact that they rejected this idea of we're just like everyone else no they said we're better we're we're challenging these norms associated with with sex um and increasing the scope of it and so i mean the the features of that that i loved is that it was one tied to sex which i know is something that you guys have talked about it was all about sex and Two, it wasn't about approval. It was about the opposite of approval. It was about, no, we're going to teach you how to live your life. I don't care how you react to me. Um, And it was tied in with the punk scene and all that sort of stuff. And you can see that had a certain ethos to it, which, you know, as someone who has that kind of individualist politics, that really, really gelled with me. What what I am not a fan of and what I see the word queer being associated with now is um, a whole lot of very, very broad political ideas um, that are very, very removed from from sexuality. So the thing that I care about when I think about uh, queer politics is that I want people to be able to fuck without fear. That's, That's what I want. That's what I care about. I don't care so much about the cultural identity associated with it, the social identity associated with it. I think there are some people that look at at gay liberation and they see the main benefits of gay liberation being like the invention of drag as an art form. And drag's fine and it's entertaining, but it's not a political thing in my head. It has no political significance. And so, yeah, I suppose I just see that kind of queer stuff as being more about... Uh, cultural identity, cultural ideas, social ideas. There's a lot of pop psychology thrown in there. And yeah, I've just completely disconnected from it entirely. I I, I mean, I also just have an issue with lumping things together and thinking that that is of some benefit. So um, I believe you... So it's like the notion of a queer community or some sort of broad term. We can be different we can differ and in fact we can have values that clash isn't that kind of like isn't that great isn't that great yeah and it it happens so much that in a way that's not within you know quote unquote the queer community whatever that is there is so much clashing but i think that it's not there's this idea of unity or desired unity that means that when someone when there's clashing there has to be someone who's not queer enough or not not you know not within that's enough enough within that within that politics and they need to go out and learn something or you know they need to educate themselves and that pacifies the language in ways that i think you know i said pop psychology but it pacifies the language in a way that um 
I think I just find kind of infantile and not very interesting um, and kind of a... I think I do take it a little bit personally because people are putting themselves forward as the representatives of the politics of people like me. And I just loathe it. <laughs> and so, it, you know, so the reason I rant against these kind of queer ideas and queer politics is just that it, it, it feels like someone is trying to speak on my behalf and they're doing all of the wrong things. And I would much rather cut myself off completely from all of that and speak earnestly about who I am. So do you think that, uh, you know, just going on from this, do you think that gay as a term and i I don't want to get caught up too much in terms because all terms have problems but do you think that that represents you better in some ways or there's a politics there that represents you better currently within the current iterations of it or is it just a convenience term to go back to i think i I mean i think when i use the word gay i'm not thinking of it in terms of gay as noun i'm thinking it in terms of i like to fuck men yeah Yeah. or or just or just like an advertisement yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) just like Come here, boys. Um, that, that's how I'm kind of <laughs> seeing the the use of that term. Um, and I am I am incredibly so when I make these critiques, I think people think that I'm sort of like self hating or that, that I'm trying to be this like straight acting thing. I'm not that at all. Um, I'm very very proud about being gay, um, but I'm also I just have different ideas and different conceptions of sexual liberation and politics and all these sorts of things. Um, and I just wish we could just recognize that difference. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That makes sense. Okay. Finally, um, you have a new podcast called Sinister Sissies. Yes. Uh, can you tell us all about it? So, um, you did an episode, Queers did an episode on gay media. Mm-hmm. Um, and the death of gay media and is gay media dying and, and all of those sorts of things. And, to be honest, I kind of was like, maybe it should die. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, I remember, I remember you tweeting about that, I think, when, yeah. the, when the Star Observer news came out. Um, and I think one of the reasons I'm kind of ambivalent about some of the aspects of gay media is that um, me as, you know, I don't use the term community, but me as just like a marketable demographic, uh, I didn't see anything from it. I didn't see the the... The, anything that was being offered or discussed in gay media as having any kind of offering to me. Um, and I think I said that on Twitter like years ago and someone turned around and said like, well, why don't you just make something that does meet what you want? Uh, and you know what? Fair enough, angry Twitter person. Um, <laughs> I started Sinister Sisters, which I do uh, with my friend Paul Karp, who's a reporter at The Guardian. And what that's all about is... I was a morbid little goth kid, and in some ways I still am a morbid little goth kid. Um, and so the podcast is all about, you know, horror, true crime, even things like heavy metal, weird and wacky side things as well. We did a Satanism episode, for example. It's looking at these kind of darker comments, uh, darker um, topics in life from a, from a gay male perspective. I mean, the current tagline that I'm that I'm using is uh, less glitter, more gore um, <laughs> to kind of summarize what, what it's all about. And we've been doing we've done six episodes so far. Um, as I say, yeah, we covered Satanism. We looked at the serial killer, Jeffrey Dahmer. We've looked um, at Gal, who is uh, an amazing gay man who is the lead singer of the black metal band Gorgoroth. 
Um, all these wonderful stories that that are involved with sexuality and gay male sexuality that I just have never seen told, you know, in in gay media and traditional gay media. And so I'm really excited to be able to offer that um, to other weirdos like me. Yeah, I guess it's like thinking about it, you, you know, the, you see this sort of positive side of gayness. And I think there's almost a desire... Uh, within gay press to not present negative sides or gory sides or weird things because there's this kind of oh, yeah. desire to be respectable in some form. As oh, I, talking I, love about the, I love a gay serial killer. Yeah, yeah, but I think that there, there, there's almost... There would be a desire to ignore that person or to not talk about it because that reflects badly on all of us uh, in some ways. Uh, and I think it's nice to not. I think it's good to not to to recognise the sort of the the deviance. Going back to the initial sort of thread of this conversation, the deviance that exists. And I think, are we at this point where we can just have just good old fashioned morbid fun? Like, yeah. <laughs> no one is gonna look at my podcast and think that I'm trying to say that like every gay guy is a Jeffrey Dahmer. Okay, that's just not realistically going to happen. Let's just enjoy, you know, consuming morbid, fucked up media and maybe not overanalyzing it so much. That would be my ethos to the whole thing. And, you know, there is definitely a market for it. If you think about, I, mean, I was just thinking about the obsession with Ted Bundy recently uh, mm. with, the, with the, the series that are out there. There's definitely an interest in, in this stuff for some odd reason. I know that yeah. I'm, interested in, I'm interested in it too. Uh, and, I, and I can never pinpoint why. Uh, I, I think- always... We talked about it in the podcast. We were talking about the fact that everyone, because everyone, it used to be that if you were really into crime and horror and things like that, that you were like the weird kid. But no, it's back in vogue now. It's actually kind of. Or cool. you read Agatha Christie novels. Oh, okay. Yes. Well, yeah, I'm that's, sure that's probably that's, that's one thing you that, probably did. You read crime novels, you know. Not Agatha Christie. That was like the least metal thing you could have said. <laughs> but if you're into crime, you could read those sorts of things. That was. Yes. Yeah, they were the acceptable ones. Um, But now everyone's suddenly understanding that, oh, actually, I really like this, like, gory, hardcore shit. Um, But they always try and justify it by things like, I'm very interested in criminal psychology. (laughs) They always try and get this kind of middle-class sensibility justification for it. But no, it's perfectly human. It's perfectly human to like disturbing things and horrific things i think relating it back to um what i was discussing earlier it's because i think you by consuming that type of media you have that kind of limit experience a little bit there's that little sense of engaging something outside of the norm and engaging something maybe a little bit kind of sacred because it is so beyond our current morality um and yeah I'm happy to share that as part of the podcast. So where can our listeners find the podcast? And maybe while we're at it, where where can they find you? Oh, okay. So you can follow me on Twitter at Jared Bartle. Uh, It's J-A-R-R-Y-D-B-A-R-T-L-E. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Sinister Sissies. Um, And we're currently on SoundCloud, but also iTunes and a bunch of other places. Um, The hosting might change. So go to Twitter first, at Sinister Sissies, and you can check it out there. Great. I think we'll put some links into that in the show notes for this episode as well. Awesome. Um, But... Jared, thank you very much for talking to us on Queers. Thanks for having me on. It was great.
Thanks as always for listening. If you'd like to find out more information about Jared or just to follow his writing, you can follow him at Jared Bartle on Twitter. Or you could follow his podcast at Sinister Sissies on Twitter. I know I'm going to start listening to it straight away. You can find out more about our podcast in multiple ways via the internet. First of all, we'd like to encourage you to sign up to our Patreon. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support it, the Patreon is really helping us be, make the podcast financially stable. And we are also uh, producing a whole range of new content on there, both new bonus episodes as well as blog posts. Go and check it out at patreon.com forward slash queers podcast. Otherwise, you can contact us in various ways on the internet. You can email us at queerspodcast at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Queers Podcast. Ben and I both have our own personal social media as well. I'm at Simon Copland on Twitter and Simon Copland Writer on Facebook. Ben is at Ben C. Riley on Twitter. You can follow the podcast on our website, queerspodcast.com, and make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, And if you do, please leave a review and rating. This is the best way for people to find us or one of the best ways for people to find us. uh, And it really uh, helps boost us in the rankings of these different systems. Finally, we'd like to say thanks to Lip Media, our podcast network. There's been a new uh, addition to the Lip Media Network, a show called Deviant Women, a fortnightly discussion of different deviant women from history, fiction, mythology, and the contemporary world. And I really strongly encourage you to all go and check it out. Uh, You can check it out at Lip Media, lip.media on the web. Also, please tell a friend about the Queers Podcast. If you like it, tell someone about it. We know that word of mouth is the best way to get the message out there about the podcast. Uh, We've had lots of really great messages from people who've heard about the podcast in this way. So if you like it, please tell a friend and maybe they'll enjoy it as well. Thanks as always for listening and we look forward to talking to you in a couple of weeks' time. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com listen. Shopify.com listen. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.